those of us here, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have a, uh, grab a Bible, either Pew Bible or your phone or however you want to do it. And uh, we'll continue our, our series on lies we live by. This is our second uh, lesson on that, our lies that we live by. Uh, we currently live in a society that preaches the gospel of self. Have you notice that? Self-esteem, self-image, self-determination. To be authentic, I must belong to myself. To be happy, I must uh, put myself first. To be fulfilled, I must be enough for myself. To be successful, I must control my destiny. And this focus on self has led us to buy into the lies that truly affect the way that we think and live. I want us to examine these lies as we go through these weeks so that we can eliminate them from our thinking. We don't want to live in a involuntary slavery to worldly thinking. We don't want to put ourselves under that. So we want to be freed from that. I want to consider these, these things. Tonight, I want to start by asking you what you think of the following statement. Live your truth because you are enough. So put yourself first. Live your truth because you are enough. So put yourself first. Adam likes it. Says thumbs up. What do you think of this statement? Any thoughts on it? Live your truth because you're enough. And then there's a little bit more. So put yourself first. Linda. You're so close-minded. <laughs> yes. What else? What else do you see with this statement? Enough of trouble. <laughs> now, is this something that you've never heard before? No, a, a version of it? Or is it something that uh, you'll come across? New age? Okay. Um, that's something that, uh, if I, this is actually a compilation of three different lies that you find all over Christian teaching today. Not just the world, but in Christian teaching. These are, the, the, the three lies are these. I should bring this up here. Maybe not. Well, the first one is that there is such thing as subjective truth that only applies to an individual or a certain group. That's a lie. That's the idea of your truth. If something's true, then it's true. Now, sometimes we confuse truth with opinion. Okay. What is the best dessert? What's what's the best dessert? Ice cream, chocolate cake. What else? Rebecca's cheesecake. Lewis's pies. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> These are not your truths. These are your opinions. And there's a difference, right? Because in that one, really, there's no right or wrong. No, Lewis says, yes, there is some. Uh, the, these are opinions, but there's no such thing as your truth that's different than some other truth. The second lie that we find in that statement is that each person is enough in and of himself or herself to face life. 
That's usually the context that is given. You're enough in and of yourself to face life. And the third is that the self is more important than anybody else. That the self should be the most important priority in one's life. These are three, 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 oh. listening to all that Portuguese and that, that video kind of messed me up. These are three lies that, that, the, these, that, that statement brings. And these are the three, three truths that then respond to that. Tonight, I just want to look at that first one. That first one, the idea that there is absolute truth or whether there is your truth and then my truth. Has, have you guys, any of you parents, heard of S.D. Smith? Have you kids read their books, his books? Uh, the Green... The, the Green Embers, yes. There's about, I don't know, 10, 20 uh, volume titles from that series. It's about rabbits with swords uh, go, that go on great heroic activities, right? Uh, they look like this. In, in, in one of those books, one character says to the other, you can choose what you believe, Shuffler, but you can't change what's true. You can choose what you believe, but you can't change what's true. And that's amazingly correct coming from a rabbit. Actually, I don't know what, actually, I don't know what character says it. I'm assuming it was, a, it was a, a rabbit. That's one wise rabbit, because this is exactly what the scriptures teach. We can choose what we believe, but we can't change what is true. And that's a, we've forgotten that as a society. That's no longer where the world we live in stands. We live in a world that has a ban of the factual nature of truth. We live in a world that tends to start with what is, it, it finds compelling and beautiful and then seeks only the sources that prove its preconceived understanding of the way things are. They, it's like, I want this to be true. Now I'm going to find the supporting evidence to make this to be my, my truth. And if we're honest with ourselves, we often operate this way as well. We've, we, this is what we want. Now let me find the, the supporting evidence for me to arrive at this conclusion. We are living in a world that is governed by a philosophy that is a child of postmodernism. Now, it's Wednesday night after a long day of work, and we're going to act, actually talk about French philosophy for just a couple of minutes. Yes, whoa, 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 yeah. But this is what we live. We live in a world that is governed by a philosophy that is the child of postmodernism. Remember the 2020, remember the year 2020 is the lost year uh, in everybody's lives. But it was a year of upheaval. And during the upheaval of 20, the summer of 2020, sorry, uh, Siri keeps on saying, thinking that, uh, here. There, uh, during the upheavals of that year, you all of a sudden, if you walk your neighborhoods and so on, you start seeing black signs with very colorful letters or statements of different different statements, several different colors. And these these signs taught the new creed that had been codified 
and made into law, at least unofficially, in the American suburban consciousness. I don't know, maybe my, oh, there is a, that. Um, maybe it's only my neighborhood, but it, I see, uh, go on walks and see that all, all over. Black Lives Matter, women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real, love is love. No matter your faith or ability, kindness is everything. And we say, amen. Is that fair to say? These are not bad things, right? And when, so when take at face value, these statements seem right and good, but the words used in this creed were linguistically stolen and repurposed as slogans for certain values. What does it mean when it says love is, is that the first one? Love is love. What does it mean when the sign says love is love? Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a specific. Anybody can have sex with whomever they want. Love is love means affirming virtually any sexual relationship someone wants to engage in. How about women's rights? The, the one, women's rights are human rights. Yes, women's rights means helping to keep abortion legal. How about no human is illegal? It's usually a way to advocate for specific immigration uh, policies and, and purposes, right? So you can see that this is the new creed. This is how, that's our society, and this is a child of postmodern thinking. So the question becomes, how did we get here? How did we get here? How do we get to the point where society is willing to, or even encouraging, the redefinition of meaning and redefinition of reality? Because really, that's what our society is trying to do, to redefine reality. How do we get here? Well, the 1960s, anybody here born in the 60s? Anybody here product of the 60s? Yes. So, no. The 70s are worse, but the 60s, a lot of bad things came from, but the 70s were, you see people dressed in 70s clothes? It's horrible, but anyway, that's beyond the point. Uh, the 1960s produced a philosophy that became incredibly trendy over the, the next couple of decades, and then it kind of fizzled out, went into hiding, mutated, and now it's back into popularity. And that doctrine was postmodernism. And you've heard that word out there. It, it, had, it, it is given birth to a new version of it. And postmodernism has infected our lives, especially how we think of pro and process information. Postmodernism is a reaction to moder modernity, which is not a drug manufacturer. <laughs> it's just modernism, but modernity is the proper way of talking about it. And modernity says the absolute truth exists and is discoverable, and usually discoverable through logic, reason, or the lab, like the laboratory. laboratory. And modernity loved the scientific method and tried to apply it to every area of knowledge. Postmodernism, on the other hand, is deeply skeptical of any objective truth and suspicious of the power dynamics of those who claim to know it. Postmodernism is actually a child of another philosophy that is super popular today, and that is the idea of critical theory. 
Now, we, are from, we hear critical race theory often, but critical race theory is just a subset of this bigger philosophy of critical theory. That everything in society and history can be expressed between the struggle between the oppressor and the oppressed. And in postmodernism, those that say they have the truth are the oppressor. And the oppressed has to fight against that idea that there is absolute truth, because absolute truth is only there as a figment of the oppressor's imagination to keep people under control. So that's, that's the idea of postmodernism. Now, postmodernism doesn't deny the laws of physics, right? They don't say, oh, there's no gravity. That's not what they're saying. They're denying the idea of absolute moral truth. That's what they're denying. Moral truth, they say, was something created by a particular group or a particular uh, um, clan or society, or something constructed by a particular group in order to, for it to function. So somebody decided that we needed more people in a society. So they created this idea that's wrong to kill people. So that worked well for them. But that was just because they needed more people in order to survive. Now, another society may need less people. So they may have a different uh, set of morals where it says that every year, every family, every clan, every neighborhood has to provide two kids that are going to fight to the death in the arena. Or whatever. Some of you have heard of the Hunger Games. Uh, so, so, and that's what truth is, is what whatever a group of people decide to further their, their goal. That being the case, then, it, it's not binding on any other group that did not need that truth in order to function. So postmodernism can be summarized in this. What is true for you is true for you, but what's true for me is true for me. Deep, right? Deep. Or if you want to give even simpler, oh, let, live and let live is the idea of uh, postmodernism. Uh, and uh, we, it, uh, we might even catch ourselves saying, you do you. Excuse me, you do you. Right? That's, that's a very postmodern statement there as well. You can see the effect of this thinking, even in the way that we now often use the word feel when we are stating something that we think is true. Now, I feel like... and. You're not talking about emotions or anything like that. You're just using that word instead of the word I think, or I'm stating that this is true. And, okay, if it wasn't nerdy enough, here we go. Emile, the father of postmodernism, is a French philosopher, Jacques Derrida. He kind of looks like a Playboy guy, right? It actually looks like my dad. Uh, with the, <laughs> the shirt undone down to here, they put out a little mustache, it'd be you know, nice and tan. But in the 60s, uh, Jacques Derrida, a French philosopher, gave birth to postmodernism's love child with the, with the idea of deconstruction. Deconstruction has to do with how text and meaning are related to one another. And Derrida, has, uh, was skeptical that absolute truth could be found through language. He thought that words could not be narrowed down to a single meaning or a definite meaning. 
So when somebody says something to you, you, you need to deconstruct. You have to peel back all the different layers to maybe perhaps find in there some, some truth. And in his view, the meaning had no more, the, the, the speaker had no more authority in the meaning than the listener. It didn't matter if I told you that's not what I meant. It's whatever you decide I meant, that's what I meant. So authorial intent had no purpose in determining meaning. It's what, however you receive the message, that's the true meaning of the message. Now, do you see the problem with that? What would be the problems with that? Scott G. Exactly. And I think Grant and I were talking about that even before tonight, the idea that language is losing meaning in general, where it's becoming more and more vague because we're less willing to call things as they are. So we keep on muddling and making things less and less specific that pretty soon we're going to be communicating by going, oh, 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 you know, kind of devolution of, uh, of language. What, what, is, what, is, what else is the problem that where the meaning is found by the one who hears or reads, not by the one who speaks or writes? Sure, that's the result, right? No, Derrida didn't teach that. They said they just thought that whoever receives is responsible for the meeting, not the one saying the message. Sonia, you're silenced. You can if you can't mean what you say. Yeah, Katie. Right. Yes. So, and another thing: one statement is made. We have maybe 70 people here. One statement is made. It could have 70 different meanings, real meanings, truths, according to, to um, Derrida. And you say, I'll never believe that. I'll never do that. But have you ever been in a Bible study where people sit around and they have the Bibles open in their laps and they ask, what does this mean to you? It means this. Ah, oh, deep. What does it mean to you? It means exactly opposite of what he said. Ah, oh, deep. You know, that's exactly what we're talking about here. So this is not something back in the 60s, Mr. Suave teaching it. It's something that is ingrained in the way that we think. And now this idea of deconstruction has come into the Christian world. We hear everywhere of stories of deconstruction. In the Christian context, deconstruction means the slow unraveling of someone's faith as many of the beliefs that he or she grew up with are picked apart and discarded. Now, that we, people are encouraged to just peel off all the beliefs they grew up with that were given to find their own, their own beliefs. And this is done because of a denial of the possibility of God as the absolute source of truth. It can't be what God says, so you have to find your truth somewhere else. So you have to deconstruct, and the word deconstruct just means to tear down, to unbuild what you believe to find what is real truth. We have all kinds of examples, right? You know who this guy is? That's just a yellow one. 
Joshua Harris did that. This is a less known, but way more vocal. This is Abraham Piper. This is John Piper's oldest son. Not only he denied the faith, but now he is actively opposing and encouraging people to deconstruct their faith. Some of you may know this woman, the one on the right. These are two women. They got married. The one on the right is Glennon Doyle, Christian writer, who divorced her husband to marry, uh, I can't remember her first name, but Wombacher, a soccer star for the U.S. team. Um, some of you may be more familiar with this one. Anybody know who this is? Huh? This is, no, this is Rachel Hollis. This is Rachel Hollis. Another, mom, I'm not using the, the derogatory term, that's how the category is called, another mommy blogger. Christian mommy blogger who now denies, deconstructs, still claims to be a Christian, but completely deconstructed her faith. The hat maker. And then the last one that you might know, Yes, she's dead now, but Rachel Held Evans, um, another one. And he said, man, that's a lot of women. Where are the men? There's lots of men, too. The thing is that the women tend to be more vocal and more influential. Men tend to just deny Christianity. When they deconstruct their faith, they tend to deny Christianity. Women tend to reinvent Christianity and continue to claim to be a Christian. Now, I could put a picture of Brian McLaren, um, here as well, that there'll be another one who, who, who has done that but continues to claim to be a Christian. So you see that's there. And there is a, a kernel of truth in the idea of, de, of, of deconstruction. We should always examine what we believe to make sure that it is in accordance with the Bible. And we need to peel out what's not according to the Bible. But when the first thing that's removed is the possibility of absolute truth, that's the first thing that's deconstructed, then what you're doing is demolition, not re-examine your life. Remember who said that, uh, uh, never mind, I can't even remember what he said. But the answer is Socrates. <laughs> an, an unexamined life is not worth living. So, and it's true, it, 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 it's a biblical concept, but when you deny the possibility of the absolute truth, you're not examining, you're destroying you them. Demolishing. Does anything... Now, question. Does any of this really matter? This seems to be an academic debate. Do we really care about French philosophers from the 1960s on a ways and night after a long day of work? Well, the meaning of words and the existence of absolute truth, universal truth, is of utmost importance to Christianity. The gospel doesn't work apart from the notion of absolute moral and historical truth. So, if, if there is no truth, there is no gospel. Are you with me on that? So if we, if we, if we from right off the bat, eliminate the possibility of absolute truth, a truth that's binding universally, everywhere, every time, then we end up not having the gospel, because that's what the gospel claims to do. We're running against the time here. What I wanted to do next is to show that, that that's true. The gospel doesn't exist apart from absolute claims of truth 
by looking at the claims that Jesus rose from the dead and how central they are, and actually how true they are, that you have to deny logic and history and everything in order to throw that truth away. And hopefully we'll do that as we begin next, two weeks from tonight, because next week will be... um, be Georgie taking some of the time, so I don't know. We'll see. I'll work with her to see how much time she wants. So we'll start with that next week. But as we finish tonight, let me show you some, some quotes from Christians, okay, that, here. And let's think about... Ah, oh, that was so good. That was an atheist, Air Bartman, saying... Uh, Air Bartman is a New Testament, huh? Bart Ehrman, not Air Bartman. Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar, is atheist, um, saying that there's no way to deny the resurrection of Christ. But we're going to go there. Look at this. This is uh, somebody who claims to be a Christian. And she says this. She says, when we use the language of indoctrination with its should and shouldn't, right and wrong, good and bad, we are activating our minds. That's not what we are going to for here because our minds are polluted by our training in order to get beyond our training we need to activate our imaginations our minds are excuse makers our imagination are storytellers what is she saying (laughs) she's telling yeah she's saying don't use your mind bypass your mind the part of the of the being that is responsible for assessing ideas, engage intellectually, and discerning truth and error. Instead, use your imagination that is unhinged from its national, its rational and logical mind. So, unhinge yourself from logic, unhinge yourself from thinking. And that's a, a so-called bestseller Christian writer. Okay, how about this? I lack all objectivity. I evaluate the merit of every idea based on how it bears upon actual people. What is she saying? What, is what determines truth? How it affects people. How people react to it, how it affects people. The same with this next one. If you, if you feel trapped by your identity because you know it's hurting you, Break free and do the work to claim the truth that fits you now. No one gets to define you. Uh, the, these authors admit they determine truth based on how it makes them or someone else feel. If a teaching makes someone feel negative, uncomfortable, or harmed, it can be deemed false and disregarded. I hope you see a problem with that. Because you, know, you don't have to read too much in the New Testament to come across a statement, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one who does good, no, not one. There's no one who is righteous. Those don't feel good. Right? Those hurt. And if that's how we're going to determine truth, then there's no, no gospel. And these are best-selling so-called Christian writers that are in Still the umbrella, considering about a big of evangelicalism today. We have to be careful that we're not being contaminated, and we're going to look at the truth claims of the scriptures then next week and using the resurrection of Christ, what the Bible says about the truth of the resurrection, to help us 
think of the importance of this idea of the absolute truth for the gospel. Any questions or comments before we close? All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you're good to us. We thank you for being an absolute God and a God who reveals himself absolutely in, the wor- in your word. Help us to be committed to the truth, the truth of the scriptures. We pray, Father, that uh, you would protect our hearts and our minds. We pray that you dismiss us with your blessings tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.